Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. So instead of the traditional intro music, maybe today I should have done dueling banjos because the topic of today's episode is dueling diagnoses. I'll get into what I mean by that in a second. Anyways, traditional intro for me. I'm Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm a psychologist in the state of Tennessee, and I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University. And one of the reasons I've been so long in publishing this new episode uh, is that we had exam week, um, I had a lot of grading to do, and then we just had commencement exercises at Christian Brothers University, which were like three or four hours long on Saturday. So I apologize. I'm just settling down, trying to settle into my summer routine, uh, doing a lot of clinical work this summer, hopefully some research work this summer, and hopefully pumping out some more podcast episodes. So I apologize um, for almost the month delay, I think, in between episodes. Anyways, I mentioned this episode was going to cover dueling diagnoses. And this is a mailbag request episode. So a few months ago, I got this email um, from Vodulus in Greece. And he says, greetings from Greece. I want to thank you for the very informative podcast. It's easy to understand, especially since English is not my first language and I'm not specialized in the field of psychology. Would you be able to do an episode on multiple diagnoses, as in many different diagnoses from different psychologists and how this might happen? Wish you all the best. Um, and yes, I'm happy to do this. So in fact, I get called to do second or third opinions a lot, especially related to autism spectrum disorder. So a lot of times psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health experts are not on the same page diagnostically. You could have two or three different reports that arrive at different conclusions, different diagnostic conclusions. And at the end of the day, you're wondering, what is the real diagnosis? With autism, for example, I know that different clinicians are calibrated differently. Some are super conservative with the autism diagnosis, while others are super liberal with the diagnosis, meaning they're more likely to hand out the diagnosis with very few symptoms. So there's a lot of subjectivity when it comes to diagnosis. To curb the subjectivity, to try to make diagnosis more objective, I always say assessment, assessment, assessment. Um, and so at the end of the day, if you're left with two or three diagnoses and you're wondering, you know, will the real Slim Shady please stand up, um, look and see what sort of assessment was done to arrive at that diagnostic conclusion. Were valid and reliable assessments conducted? Oftentimes when I have discrepant diagnoses, um, there'll be a diagnosis that maybe had a lot of assessment behind it, a lot of evidence behind it, and there might be a diagnosis that was given after a 20 or 30 minute intake. Um, sort of one of the dirty secrets about uh, the practice of psychology uh, and the practice of mental health care in general, um, if you're a counselor or whatever, uh, in graduate school, they probably tell you, your professors probably tell you not to give a diagnosis on the first visit. Don't give a diagnosis on the first visit, and you need a lot more evidence than to give a diagnosis. But in the real world, right, in order to um, get reimbursed through insurance, a lot of times you have to put a diagnostic code in. And so some of the confusion about is this a true diagnosis or not might just be that that clinician was forced to put a diagnostic code in after their intake, after the first session, um, and then that might change with future sessions. In a way, it could sort of be a placeholder to give you access to treatment in the meantime. Now, this mailbag question also sort of touches on validity in that um, Vigelis believes that there's some sort of true diagnosis that's out there. And I think that's a lot of what um, diagnosticians rely on. You think that there is this true diagnosis that's out there, sort of like with intelligence, 
we have this latent G variable. You know, when we're measuring intelligence, uh, when we're trying to measure intelligence through like an IQ test through cognitive testing, we know that we're never able to sort of tap into this invisible latent G factor that's out there. We're only able to sort of imperfectly measure or estimate intelligence through our human-made tests that are always going to have error. And so we can draw a parallel argument or sort of a parallel something um, with psychopathology, right? We're not able to truly measure your social anxiety. We're not able to truly measure your depression. We're only able to estimate levels of depression through things like rating scales and what have you. And that assumes that there's this uh, valid diagnostic category of like depression. And one of the criticisms of the DSM-5 is that some diagnoses, and maybe even many or most diagnoses, lack what we call diagnostic validity. They might not actually be true diagnoses. So for example, um, avoidant personality disorder is basically the same thing as social anxiety disorder. Avoidant personality disorder has very poor diagnostic validity. It might not actually be a thing. There might not be a latent variable, a latent diagnosis of avoidant personality disorder that's out there. And this is because the DSM-5 and its diagnostic labels are created by people. And these diagnostic labels might not be perfect. Um, again, some of these might not even be true disorders. So there might not be a corresponding latent construct that's out there. Uh, whereas medical diagnoses are oftentimes different, right? No one is going to argue that there's such thing as diabetes or that there's such thing as a brain tumor. So in medicine, we have what's called a pathognomonic sign for certain disorders. Um, okay, so an example. Uh, I don't think I mentioned this in any of my previous episodes, uh, but in the last few years, I've had some lumps that have shown up on me. Um, and one of these lumps, you know, I had an MRI on my hand, and it came out to be a schwannoma. And a schwannoma is a nerve tumor. Um, it's related to neurofibromas, which are also nerve tumors. Um, and anyways, the concern with, you know, neurofibromas or schwannomas, there's, there could be an underlying genetic condition that's out there. Uh, the genetic condition is neurofibromatosis. And there's a couple of types of neurofibromatosis. There's NF1, neurofibromatosis type 1. There's NF2, neurofibromatosis type 2. And there's schwannomatosis. Um, and the first two types of neurofibromatosis, there's a gene that's associated with them. Uh, an NF1 gene for neurofibromatosis type 1 and an NF2 gene for neurofibromatosis type 2. Uh, and so basically I had to go to Vanderbilt last summer, get a genetic workup, because I do have a family history of neurofibromatosis. And the genetic workup came back that I do not have the NF1 or the NF2 gene, which means I don't have those two types of neurofibromatosis. Right? We know that there's such thing out there as neurofibromatosis, and there's sort of a smoking gun sign. We call it a pathognomonic sign for um, neurofibromatosis, and that you, if you've got to have the NF1 gene or the NF2 gene to have it. Down syndrome, same thing. You have to have trisomy 21 to have Down syndrome. Right? There are, we don't have those kind of pathognomonic smoking gun signs very often uh, in psychology. So certain conditions in medicine, there's not really diagnostic uncertainty. Although in a lot of medicine, there is diagnostic uncertainty, but there are certain diseases that, you know, um, we can be very sure that you have them. Now, not all medicine is like this. Uh, I'll bring in another one of my health woes. So um, since October of last year, I've had chronic hives. I also have really bad Raynaud syndrome. 
um, to where, you know, the tips of my fingers and toes get really numb. Um, so I have hives and that, and I've had low blood sugar. And so I had all this blood work done a month or two ago. And it came back that I have um, uh, my uh, anti-nuclear antibodies. I think they are ANA. Uh, that oftentimes symbolizes uh, or can get at an autoimmune disorder um, is abnormal. It's high, which there are a lot of false positives with ANA, but whatever, it's besides the point. Um, anyway, so I'm being referred to a rheumatologist. Uh, and rheumatology is really interesting in that there's so much overlap between autoimmune conditions. You have a lot of overlap between like lupus and Sjogren's um, uh, and scleroderma. And uh, there's so much diagnostic uncertainty, it can get like really, really tangled up. Um, and I think rheumatology uh, is more of where psychology is at, that we have a lot of uh, tangled symptoms, right? Um, that can mean one disorder, but they might also mean another disorder. And again, will the real Slim Shady please stand up? All right, back to the original mailbag question. So there are times when you can legitimately have multiple diagnoses, right? There's legitimate comorbidity that's out there. Um, we call this having a dual diagnosis. If you have two of them, I guess if it's more than two, we don't really call it dual diagnosis. You have comorbidities, right? We know oftentimes that generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder go hand in hand with one another, right? That doesn't mean that you uh, have one and the other diagnosis is an error. Um, you know, oftentimes we see disorders sort of cluster together. So maybe there's legitimate comorbidity and you legitimately have those multiple diagnoses. Another thing that could happen is you could originally have one diagnosis and it could sort of morph into another diagnosis later in development. And we call that heterotypic continuity. So an example of heterotypic continuity could maybe involve like separation anxiety disorder, which we typically think of as a childhood disorder. So maybe as a five or six year old, you have separation anxiety disorder. You have a really hard time separating from your parent, like at the car line at school. Um, you're a teary mess. You know, you worry about you know, catastrophes falling on your attachment figure, falling on your, your parent. And you might sort of grow out of that. Uh, but then your anxiety could maybe morph into something like social anxiety disorder or into generalized anxiety disorder. So that's not to say your original diagnosis of separation anxiety disorder was an error. That's to say that, you know, your, your diagnosis sort of uh, morphed into something else. You know, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder might morph into an adult bipolar disorder diagnosis, right? We have uh, certain disorders that tend to feed into one another. Um, I mentioned this with developmental cascade, um, with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, and then maybe adult antisocial personality disorder. Um, so yes, certain disorders definitely feed into other disorders. Heterotypic continuity is a real thing. Um, one, it's almost like whack-a-mole, um, uh, where one symptom or one disorder, uh, you can treat it, it can resolve, and then it can morph into uh, a different manifestation of, uh, which would be a different disorder diagnosis. So I guess if we're keeping track so far of why you might have multiple diagnoses that don't necessarily align with one another, or maybe they do align with one another. Um, the first could be like therapeutic or diagnostic nihilism, uh, where you really don't feel like there's a true diagnosis that's out there, because uh, these diagnostic categories are subjective anyway. So what does it matter um, if multiple clinicians arrive at different diagnostic opinions? Because, you know, this is all human-made, subjective, and in error. Um, stepping aside from that nihilistic stance, which I don't necessarily agree with, 
Um, maybe you do have legitimate comorbidity and maybe you can legitimately have those different diagnoses that are listed by you know, multiple clinicians or whatever. Um, so legitimate comorbidity, um, or maybe it's heterotypic continuity where you originally had one diagnosis and then it morphed into another diagnosis later on in development. Um, so those are sort of the options we've covered so far. Um, another option is that the diagnosis that you were given um, by one clinician might be an error. So clinicians, diagnosticians, right, we're human, we make mistakes, and maybe you were given a diagnosis in error, especially if it was like in the first session where the, the clinician had to plug in a diagnostic code for insurance purposes. There are times when you can be pretty positive that you were given a diagnosis in error, and that's if you're given a diagnosis or given diagnoses that are mutually exclusive. So there are sometimes diagnoses that can't coexist with one another, at least according to the DSM-5, right? So you can't have anorexia nervosa at the same time that you have bulimia nervosa, all right? And so if a clinician gives you both of those at the same time, you know that one of those diagnoses is wrong. Um, we do know that bulimia and anorexia can sort of flip-flop with heterotypic continuity. You can meet diagnostic criteria for one, it can shift into the other, but you can't really hold both at the same time. They're mutually exclusive diagnoses. So you might know if you're given a one of those uh, mutually exclusive diagnoses in the DSM-5 um, that you were given a diagnosis in error. Again, clinicians are calibrated differently. And when we talk about experts, we'll, we'll consider clinicians experts. Um, sort of arriving at different or same conclusions, we can think about inter-rater reliability. Uh, inter-rater reliability is where you have multiple raters, in this case, they would be clinicians, and we try to see how often they agree with one another. So if I'm training on a new assessment instrument that relies on like behavioral observation, a lot of times uh, we'll try to calibrate, um, clinicians might go to a workshop like with the ADOS, the uh, Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. Um, in order to be uh, certified clinically to give the ADOS, you need to have inter-rater reliability after attending a training session. And so you'll sort of do a mock administration uh, or watch a mock administration. Maybe it's a video of an ADOS. Um, you'll score what you see, and then you'll try to align those scores with those of your trainer and everybody else that's in the, uh, the mock administration with you. Um, and we want you to have 80% agreement, uh, at least with everybody else that's in the room, um, so that we know that you're looking for the right things when you're scoring this up. Basically, we want clinicians to be on the same page. And unfortunately, when it comes to DSM-5 diagnoses, we know that the DSM-5 um, has pretty poor inter-rater reliability when clinicians are looking at certain diagnoses and trying to arrive at whether you have the diagnosis or not. You know, you can have a room of 10 psychologists or psychiatrists and they could arrive at vastly different diagnostic opinions. Um, and this has been one of the criticisms of the DSM-5. In fact, the DSM-5 response committee uh, used a measure of inter-rater reliability uh, known as CAPA. It's actually known as Cohen's CAPA. And it's the same statistician, Jacob Cohen, um, that Cohen's D is named after. You might have heard of Cohen's D in a stats course. Uh, that's a commonly used measure of effect size. Uh, we also have Cohen's Kappa, uh, which we can use for inter-rater reliability. Um, and uh, really, we want Cohen's Kappa to be 0.7 or higher um, uh, when we're looking at diagnoses. We want 0.7 or higher. And there's only one diagnosis in the DSM-5 
and that's major neurocognitive disorder that has a kappa of 0.7 or higher. So really the iterator reliability for all other diagnoses besides like dementia, major neurocognitive disorder, um, or is really low. The iterator reliability is really low. And ideally, we would really want it to be 0.9 or higher. I mean, that's what we're working with in a lot of uh, medical settings. Um, but 0.7 is, you know, more realistic, and we're not even reaching that with most of our diagnoses. Um, now, certain diagnoses do have better iterator reliability than others. Um, PTSD tends to have pretty high iterator reliability. Schizophrenia, again, you get multiple clinicians together. A lot of times, all arrive at the same conclusion, schizophrenia or PTSD, they have higher kappa values, whereas we see lower kappa values for like personality disorders, which again, we run into diagnostic validity questions with a lot of our personality disorders um, as they're written or conceptualized today. Um, there are also some really tough differential diagnoses to make. Um, between bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder, that can be a really, really tough one. Again, the key factor there would be sussing out whether a manic episode has occurred if we're talking bipolar one. A lot of times there's sleep factors that might distinguish bipolar from borderline. But again, it's a tough one due to erratic behaviors um, and erratic emotions to, to, to arrive at. A lot of times I'll see diagnosis of borderline and bipolar. And, you know, I don't legitimately think that the person has both, even though it's possible they have both. It's just sort of which of these serious mental illnesses does the person have. Um, had a, a case uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, the diagnoses were schizophrenia, bipolar one, and borderline personality disorder. Now, did I think they had all three? Probably not. I think the clinician that originally diagnosed them just saw that it was like a high-flying um, person with you know serious issues, serious symptoms, um, and so they threw three very serious diagnoses at them. In fact, I knew they really couldn't have schizophrenia and bipolar. I mean, you can have them at the same time, but they should have just gone with schizoaffective disorder. Um, anyways, uh, we know that there are certain diagnoses, though, that are, are really difficult to make the, the differential diagnosis on, uh, bipolar and borderline being uh, two of the notoriously harder ones. Um, and we do know that bipolar disorders are misdiagnosed. I think in my bipolar disorder episode, um, I mentioned the Zimmerman et al. study that found that um, only 43.5% of bipolar diagnoses that were reviewed um, in this study, once we did, again, assessment, assessment, assessment uh, with these people that carried bipolar diagnoses, we did uh, assessment by a team of experts in bipolar, and only 43.5% of those original diagnoses were legit. So again, back to assessment. Assessment is super important. Um, and sort of getting back to autism. Um, so I know some kappas from you know, research teams of experts are in the low 0.2s. And again, we want to be around 0.7. Uh, but the good thing about the ADOS, again, that autism diagnostic observation schedule, which are here called the gold standard for autism diagnosis, once you bring in a high quality assessment like the ADOS, uh, we get kappas closer to 0.7 and 0.8. So again, I can't underscore the importance of assessment enough. All right, so that's dueling diagnoses. I hope that helps. Uh, it is a really interesting topic, um, and it is something that I encounter quite frequently. You know, I'll get medical records for a client. They'll have seen two or three different psychologists or psychiatrists, um, and they're carrying different diagnoses from each of the mental health experts uh, that they went to. Um, and again, I do a lot of second and third opinion sort of work. 
So psychologists aren't perfect, our diagnoses aren't perfect, and the DSM-5 is far from perfect. Uh, I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, anyways, this is a mailbag request. Um, you can send other mailbag requests, comments, praise, hate mail, whatever, to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu, and I'll try to respond to it. And looking at the mailbag this week, we do have a mailbag email. Um, it's from Caitlin, and Caitlin says, Hello, Dr. Taylor. I discovered your podcast a couple weeks ago. I would like to make a request. Your most recent episode, Talking to Children About Death and Dying, was really interesting. Glad you found it interesting. Um, and I wanted to make a request in a similar light about talking to or helping children cope with divorce and or a parent going to prison. Um, it's a bit of a niche request, but it's something relevant to my situation, and I would love to hear some more research in a psychologist's perspective. Thank you so much for the email, Caitlin. I'm glad you enjoyed the talking uh, about death and dying with children episode. You know, it was sort of a depressing topic, but it's an important one. And uh, the topic that you bring up or the topics you bring up about talking to children about coping with divorce, it's a hugely important topic. And so is talking to uh, um, uh, children about their parent going to prison. I really could do two different episodes on those. So I'm going to brainstorm, see how I can work that into a future episode or episodes. Um, I'm running out of steam here. Um, my kids are down for a nap, so I'm going to drink an afternoon cup of coffee um, in the meantime, um, and I'm going to try to be productive with the rest of their nap time. Uh, so until the next episode, which hopefully won't be as long and coming out as the, the gap has been between uh, the last one and this one, um, take care, stay well, and enjoy the start of your summer.